0: Father, this morning, we praise your name. We lift up our voices to you. We cry unto you that we are poor and needy sinners. And Lord, I know that my own life is full of faults and defects. But Lord, I claim the righteousness of Jesus today. Our only hope is his blood shed for us. Our only hope, Lord, is that his sacrifice is sufficient and we know that it is. And so, Father, this morning as we gather together to open the pages of the Bible, I pray this morning that You would move us, that You would shake us, encourage us. Lord, I pray that You'll bring comfort to the afflicted, but that You will also afflict the comfortable. And we pray this morning that the Spirit would transform us and would make us more and more like Jesus until we become just like Jesus. This is our prayer this morning, and we come in Jesus' sweet name, let God's people say, Amen. When righteousness becomes sin. I love this text in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. And I often don't put the Scriptures on the screen, but this morning I did because I want us to read it together. i like us to look them up. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Now, do we have that on the screen? There we go. Let's all read that together, if you would, on three. Ready? One, two, three and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture for Seventh-day Adventists, the Bible tells us that we have this prophetic word, what's the next word? Confirmed. And throughout the Ages of history, as Adventists, we have been preaching this prophetic message, yes or no? Through, for the last 150 years, we've preached this message of Bible prophecy being fulfilled, Jesus soon to come, Jesus would come in the clouds of heaven to take his people home, and we have had a very distinct, a very specific message that centers and anchors in the book of Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' messages. Everything that we believe from salvation to the second coming can be found in that little passage. Can you say amen this morning? Now, what I believe today, that in the last five to ten years, that which Seventh-day Adventists have been preaching for the last 150 years, those prophecies, we have been preaching always, in in a sense, a futuristic way. But I believe today that we can look upon the world and we can see that those things which we once preached to be taking place in the future are now taking place in the present and indeed over the last several years. We are no longer living in the waiting for the final prophecies to happen, but we are now watching them unfold. What do you believe this morning? Do you believe that today? Recently Time Magazine put out this publication After Pope Francis was elected and it was called the New Roman Empire. Can you believe the things that are taking place in our world today? Christianity Today made this statement just a few years ago. It said within a few centuries the Pope has gone from Antichrist to Brother in Christ for a lot of Protestants. Isn't that very interesting? We find this to be true. And just a few years ago, Pope Francis addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress, something that no religious leader, much less a Catholic leader, has ever done in the history of our nation. And if you'd have tried to attempt this 30, 40, 50 years ago, there would have been a revolt and there would have been some sort of hanging. What do you think? and yet he stood at the cheers and the clapping and the applause and the tears flowing of many people from our nation, our representatives, our Congress, and he spoke words that were very specific for the times that we live. Here's a little excerpt from that speech that he had. He says, "'I call for courageous and responsible effort to redirect.'" To what, friends? "'Redirect our steps.'" I'm convinced that we can make a difference, and I have no doubt that the United States and this Congress have an important role to play. Now is the time for not courageous thought, not courageous prayer, but courageous what? Courageous actions and what, friends? Strategies. We've seen uh, every president has been meeting with this gentleman for the last several decades, and the current president is no different. Notice this statement From the Review and Herald. Now when he made those statements, and I could show you more that are very, very interesting if you read between the lines. When he made these statements, people were cheering, applauding. They were crying, and they were moved by deep emotion. And they were in great support, both Republicans and Democrats, Independents, and everything else in between and around it. They were all in support of this. And never before had there probably been a louder applause than there was that day. But notice this statement from the Review and Herald, June 1, 1886. It says, "...this is the religion which Protestants are beginning to look upon with so much favor, which will eventually be united with Protestantism. This union will not, however, be affected by a change in Catholicism, for Rome never changes. She claims infallibility. It is Protestantism that will change." The adoption of the liberal ideas on its part will bring it where it can clasp the hand of Catholicism. Isn't that very interesting? And friends, we see today multiple denominations clamoring, clamoring to join forces with this power. All across the world, doesn't matter what the denomination is, people are still seeking that joint unity, that ecumenicism, that we were told would happen, that book of Revelation says would happen, that the book Great Controversy says will happen, we are seeing it take place before our very eyes. And yet, even though we have more evidence for the truthfulness of our message, though we see, have seen more prophecies fulfilled, though we see it coming right down the pipe to the, for this nation and for the world to embrace the mark of the beast, I would propose to you today that never before has the church been more asleep. It seems like the more evidence we see, the heavier our eyelids get. Notice, I'm going to move past this one. I want you to notice this. In 1948, Billy Graham said, the three greatest menaces faced by Orthodox Christianity are Communism, Roman Catholicism, and Mohammedism. Now, listen to this, friends. Just recently, just a few years ago, notice what he says. Same man, makes a different comment. I found that my beliefs are essentially the same as those of Orthodox Roman Catholic. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Rick Warren recently said this. He said, Protestants as a people have a long history of heresy. The time for reconciliation is now in order to ensure a full and dogmatic transition into the folds of the church. Now, he's not talking about Saddleback Church down there wherever he pastors. He's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. What do you think? Is that true? Yes or no? Very true. Just last year, there was a massive, one of the largest attempts to bring people together in unity was to take place near Washington, D.C. It was called Together, a massive conference, and they were going to had multiple Christian bands, music bands there, and a lot of different speakers. And they were all there to, to promote and press unity. And just be, uh, one of the main attractions was that Pope Francis was to deliver a speech to all the different denominations gathered there, and he was to address them on the issue of unity and faith and etc. Well, this is very interesting, friends, because just before he was to speak, a massive heat wave took place, and about I'm talking like I'm talking like minutes before a massive heat wave swept through the crowd and about 400 people fell sick and they had to stop the event and Pope Francis was not allowed to give or not able to give his address to all those people. Now you think about that for just a minute, dear friends. Now you can sit in your chair today and say that was just an utter coincidence. But I will tell you today that it was the hand of Almighty God holding back the winds of strife that because why? Is it because the papacy's not prepared? No. Is it because the evangelical world is not prepared? No. It's because the people of God have not been prepared. What do you think this morning? Do you believe that? We are not prepared for those things which are coming upon the earth. And so, friends, we are sitting in the midst, and there's, there's a million more I could share with you. I have a whole sermon on the recent things that have taken place. But we are sitting on the edge of eternity, we are sitting at a time when everybody's ready except you and I, except God's people, except His faithful Adventist church. The prophecies of Scripture are coming to pass today. And the question I would ask this morning is, in the midst of all these things, where is God's remnant people? Where are we? What are we doing? What message are we proclaiming? What message are we living in our daily lives? What message are we proclaiming to the world, not just through our words, but through our lives about the soon return of Christ? What message are we telling our neighbors? What message are we telling our co-workers? What message are we telling our fellow church members, our family members who don't know the truth, What message are we conveying to them through the lives that we live, the words that we speak, the actions that we take, and the choices that we make? What do you think this morning? What about you? Examine your own heart today. Don't think about your husband. Don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your children or your parents. Think about your own self today. I'll tell you where we're at, friends. And the book, Great Controversy. She explains it very clearly. Page 588, it says this, The line of distinction between professed Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. And Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism. Remember we talked about that just uh, uh, I think uh, Monday or the first day, after today's Monday, whatever the first day was. We talked about that in Revelation 18. Those foolish virgins who stray away are going to end up going where? They're going to go into Babylon. They're going to go into Babylon. Robert Atkins, a great preacher of old, made this statement. He says this, Truly the righteous are diminished from the earth, and no man takes it to heart. No man even notices The professors of religion of the present day in every church are lovers of the world, conformers to the world, lovers of creature comfort, and aspirers after respectability. They are called to suffer with Christ, but they shrink from even reproach. And did they know it? Did they feel it? There might be hope. But alas, they cry, we are rich and increased in goods and stand in need of what? Of nothing. And today, friends, we meet that bill. We fit that category. We are afraid of our neighbors even saying no to us. We are afraid of the slightest bit of rejection. We are afraid that our feelings are going to get hurt. We're afraid of what people think of us. We are more concerned about the opinions and the approvals of others than we are the opinion and the approval of Almighty God. And yet Daniel that great man of faith, the great prophet of old, was willing to lay down his life if it meant meeting the approval of God. And today we shrink even from telling our neighbors about Jesus. I want you to notice this other st- uh, statement from Great Controversy. Watch this, very, very powerful. It says, There is another and more important question that should engage the attention of the churches today. The Apostle Paul declares that all Who live godly lives in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Brothers and sisters, there's not an issue if you follow Christ of whether or not you might suffer persecution. It's not an issue of whether you could suffer persecution. The Apostle Paul says that if we follow Christ, we will suffer persecution. But all think, just think for a moment, of all that Jesus, our beloved Savior, endured for you today. Think of the insults. Think of the persecutions, the temptations, the attacks that Satan could muster up against the living Christ and all that he endured for you. Do you suppose, dear friends, today that Jesus would ever allow you to go through more for him than he went through for you this morning? What do you think? Do you suppose that he would be that kind of a person? Yes or no? Absolutely not, dear friends. There is nothing that Jesus would ask you to go through that He has not gone through before you. And there is nothing that He would ask you to go through that wouldn't be good for your salvation or for someone else's. In fact, I think of the book, Great Controversy, she says that when probation closes, when it's all said and done and every decision has been made, that God will not allow the wicked to touch one hair on the head of His righteous people why because there's no more purpose for it at all the suffering we experience in this life is always for a purpose it's either for our salvation or someone else's or as a testimony to the universe that god is righteous and he is with us there let's finish this quote right here from the book great controversy it says why then is it then that persecution in a great degree seems to slumber let me ask you this morning Do we not experience persecution in America because we have advanced in in the civilized culture? Is that why? We're above that as a people. Yes or no? What do you think? You take a look at New Orleans, what happened there when Hurricane Katrina came, and the way that people became savages in just a matter of days. It'll happen right here in America again. You understand? We are not here because we live in the land of the free. We are not free from persecution, because we have advanced too far for that. But notice what she says. The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world standard and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and His apostles. It is only because the spirit of compromise with sin because of the great truths of the Word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church, that Christianity is so apparently popular with the world. But let there be a revival of the faith and the power of the early church. How many of you want to have that power, that experience, that joy? And the spirit of persecution will be revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. Now listen, I don't want to sound fanatical here. Nobody's looking to be persecuted, you understand? We're not going out looking for a fight. We're not going around, out flaunting it around with an arrogant, egotistical attitude, trying to pick fights with people and then, and then cry persecution whenever they turn on us, you understand? But they turn on us because of our rotten attitudes rather than our sweet spirit and love for truth and love for Christ, yes? So we're not looking for it. But friends, the fact that we're not experiencing it tells us that we've become so comfortable with the world, so comfortable with our culture, so comfortable with the convenience of this life, that we are not living the godly lives that God has designed us to live. Jesus came from heaven, and he lived heaven's culture on earth, and that's why he was so persecuted all of his life. And God is calling His people today to live according to heaven's culture. He's calling us not to live in the majority of the world, but He's calling us to live with the majority of the universe, the unfallen worlds. He's calling us to something higher. He's calling us to His ideal. And there is joy, there is beauty, there is a preciousness in that type of a life. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now in the book of Peter, he says that we are called to be a peculiar people. What I would ask you this morning, have we lost our peculiarness as Seventh-day Adventist Christians? Have we lost our peculiarness as a people of God and as a people of the book, the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God? Have we lost our peculiarness amongst the nations and amongst the other people who claim to follow God, who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Have we also fell into that category? I wonder this morning. I want to talk to you today about five keys to absolute surrender. Five keys to what kind of surrender? And an absolute what? Surrender. Absolute surrender. Now, I don't want this to be some kind of little gimmick thing where it's like, "Oh, you follow these five keys and and all is well and you're going to be rich and prosperous." That's not what I'm talking about here today. You understand? But these come right from the Word of God. And I studied the book of 1 John, and I found a beautiful picture of the righteousness of Christ. In fact, the only way to have absolute surrender in your life is to have a full, rich experience with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What do you say this morning? Amen? We want to experience the righteousness of Jesus. So go with me to the book of 1 John. This is a passage that I'm sure that most of you are familiar with. 1 John chapter 5, chapter 2, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at this text. Now most of us, when I say to you that we need to give up sin in our lives, if I just make that statement, and most of us get this picture, or most of us have probably attempted to surrender or get rid of sin in our life by doing something like this. We grit our teeth, we tighten our belts, and we say, I don't need to eat any more cheese. I don't need to eat any more sugar. I don't need to, I, I need to get my exercise. I need to just tighten my belt and just be a more uh, strict and, and, and faithful Adventist. I need to live that Adventist culture a little more deeply. Yes or no? How many of you are guilty of that? I'm guilty of that. How many of you are guilty of saying, God, I'm never going to commit that sin again? How many of you are guilty of that? It seems so attempting, it seems so appealing, and then once you actually get into it, when you're actually doing it and you've finished it, it doesn't seem so appealing anymore, does it? Because that condemnation comes in. And let me tell you what, friends, if you experience the condemnation and the conviction of sin, you can rejoice. Do you know why? Because you can be assured that the Spirit of God is working in your hearts to turn you back to the living Christ and back towards repentance. Some people think that that condemnation means they've rejected God. No, if you experience a numbness in your life, if you experience a sleep in your life, that's when you need to fear being in trouble, you understand? But if you have conviction, you can rejoice because God is working your hearts, amen? And listen, we think that the answer to sin is to tighten our belts and just be tougher Adventists just to kick that sin right out the door. But I would propose to you today that you have no power to do such. You have no power to eat anyway. You have no power to do anything in your life except more sin. That's all you have power to do. But you do have the choice to stop sinning. And you do have the power that comes from on high to stop sinning. Are you with me this morning? Look with me in First John chapter two. We're so familiar with this passage. We're just going to start in verse. Um, we're going to start in verse fifteen. John says, "Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the what? Is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it." But he who does the will of God abides for how long, friends? He abides forever. And I want you to notice something here. John says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is that because if we love the world, and if we love sin, and if we're engaging in sin on a regular basis, is that is, the, is it because the love of the Father is not in us, is that because God has ceased loving us? Yes or no? No. In fact, there's nothing you can do your whole life, good or bad, that will make God love you any more or any less than what He already does. Because His love is not based upon your actions, but it's based upon His goodness and His character and who He is as a person. You understand? That love of God is pure. It... it, the love of God is so pure that it's not based upon your actions. Now, His favor is dependent upon your actions, yes or no, but His love is not. And here's the thing. The reason that the love of God is not in our hearts, if we're con- we just engaging in daily sin, is because we have made no room for it there. You see, the human heart is only so big, you understand, we can only only have so much love and affection for something. And if we've chosen to put our love and our affections on the things of the world, then we've filled our hearts with the love of the world, and there remains no room left for the love of God. Do you understand this? No man can serve two masters. You you realize. You, You know that statement. And so there has to be room in the heart for either a love for God or a love for the world. Yes or no? I mean, the two kedges can, cannot coexist. It's just a law of eternity. It just cannot be. So many people think, well, I have to get rid of this love for the world, so therefore I'm going to grit my teeth, stand up against sin, and I'm going to say, give me your best shot. And every time we do that, sin gives us its best shot. We go knock backwards, and we fall down, and we're just laying on the ground. That's not always a bad place to be because sometimes we have to be knocked flat on our back before we look up. Amen? Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before we can realize that Christ is the rock at the bottom and which we must build ourselves, yes? So here's the key, friends. The only way that you can love the world less is not to focus your efforts on the world and sin and trying to make yourself stop it. The best way to fill your loves or, or to reject the love of the world is to fill your hearts with the love for Christ. And when you look to Christ, rather than those things over there, when you look to Christ, something happens, something changes, and our hearts begin to shift our hearts begin to change. They begin to transform. They begin to, they begin to become reborn and revived. And the more that I look to Christ and the things that I know that He loves, the more I look to the loveliness and the beautiness of His character, the less appealing those things are because let me tell you this, friends. In your life, if you're addicted to alcohol, if you're addicted to, to uh, food, if you're addicted to to vanity, whatever it is you're addicted to, whether it's a substance or a person or, or money or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. Satan has different things, for uh, people to different people, and he doesn't really care what you're addicted to as long as you're addicted to something. And we sit around and we judge each other, well, he's got a woman on the side, or look at the money he has, or, or why is that person smoking? God does, uh, Satan doesn't care what it is, you understand? He doesn't really care as long as we're attached to something. Now, I forgot what I was going to say. I made that point point. I built up to it and I forgot it. But the point is this, is that when we love Christ, when we put our heart and our affections upon Him, the love of those things go away. And this is what I was going to say. It came back to me. There is nothing that any of those things can give me that satisfy my mental, physical, spiritual, or emotional needs that Jesus cannot give me more of. Nothing can satisfy the heart like Jesus. Are you with me, friends? And so whatever it is that I'm, I'm seeking to gain from that thing, Jesus can give me a better version of, a pure version of, a version that will truly satisfy the heart. You understand this? So the key to loving the world less is only one, loving Jesus more. (laughs) How many of you want to love Jesus more this morning? How many of you want to put Him first today, yeah? So number one, we're going to look at these five points now in the next 27 minutes. Number one about the righteousness of Christ is that slavery to Christ's righteousness must be what? What is it? Preferred. Now there's gonna be five P's, so you can just prepare for that. Five P's. What are they? Five what? Five P's. The first one is that slavery to Christ's righteousness must be preferred over the slavery to the world's righteousness. Unrighteousness. Now you have to understand this, friends. We do not have the power to choose Christ's righteousness. We do not have the power to reject the world's unrighteousness, but we do have a choice. Yes or no? We do have a choice. And friends, if you do not prefer or rather would rather have the righteousness of Christ over the righteousness of the world, in that moment there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. That doesn't mean there wouldn't be hope for you. But we have to come to the place where we recognize our need of a great Savior. And we must be willing to choose The righteousness of Christ. Jesus said in the Gospels, in Matthew, in the Beatitudes, those who are hungry and thirsty will be what? Filled. If you're not hungry for the righteousness of Christ, there is in no way the ability to receive it because you will not want it, you will not desire it, and you will ultimately reject it. Are you with me? Now, suppose a person's sitting here today, and they're saying, you know what? I really don't prefer the righteousness of Christ. I actually prefer the lust of sin in my life at this point in stage. And and that's what my emotions feel. That's what my flesh feels. But my mind knows that I need the righteousness of Christ, even though my whole body and everything in me cries out that I want the lust of the flesh and the lust of sin. Well, here's what I would say to you. Pray. Pray. That God would, whatever you need, friends, God will give you if you just pray for it. If you need a desire, He'll He'll give you a desire. If you need a victory, He'll give you a victory. If you need strength, He'll give you strength. If you don't have a desire, begin to pray that God will construct the events of your life to bring you to a place where you will feel your need of it. And He'll do it. How do I know? Because I stand before you one guilty. I'll tell you, friends, if you knew the things of my life, you would say, whoa, and he's a preacher? We preach those things best, which we need the most. Amen? So the righteousness of Christ must be preferred. And that's what John is saying here in verses 15 to 17. He's saying you must prefer the righteousness, the love of God over the love of the world. If you can get over that hump, if you can come to the place where you choose it, you love it, you prefer it, then God can begin to do wonderful things in your life. Amen? Amen. So listen to this. Don't miss this. This this is very fitting for Seventh-day Adventists. A man or a woman may often have a measure of the power of the Spirit. If he has merely a measure, does he have the fullness, yes or no? He doesn't have the fullness. He only has a measure. How many of you think we must have the fullness of the Spirit of God? We may have a measure of the power of the Spirit, but if there is not a complete measure of the spirit in the life, he or she will not help a people onto a higher standard of spiritual life. When he or she passes away, a great deal of their work will pass away as well. A very important principle in there. Now, so we must not just prefer or choose the righteousness of Christ, but we must also pursue it. We must what? We must pursue it because I can sit and I can prefer it all day. But God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you want. Search for me with all your heart. So righteousness must not just simply be preferred, but it must be pursued. So go with me and the Bible to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Notice what he says here. And I, this passage is beautiful. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And notice verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in Him does what? Purifies himself just as He is pure. So the ultimate goal of the righteousness of Christ is not just simply to redeem us, but it is to what? Restore us. It is to purify us. Now, not one of you sitting here, nor me standing up here, have it within ourselves to purify ourselves. You understand that? We don't have it within ourselves. But when we come to Christ, He has assured us, that he will make us pure. How many of you could say amen? He has assured us that he will make us pure. And it is by faith, we talked about this the other day, it is only by faith that we have this purity, it is by faith that he does this. But I want you to notice this, friends, there is a work for us to do in purifying ourselves. Not the act of purifying, but something very important. Now notice this statement right here. It says a union with Christ by living faith is enduring. Every other union must what? Perish. you got to burn all the bridges to Satan's world. You understand? Because what so often happens is we accept Christ, but when the, when the slightest little thing uh, goes wrong or goes amiss or the slightest temptation comes, we just like to run across that bridge right back over into Satan's world and get that little comfort mat, get that little need mat, get my little fix-me-up, Right? And then we realize that was a bad thing to do. And then we come back to Jesus and we say, Oh, Jesus, please forgive me, etc., etc. But God says, "Uh uh-uh. If you want to have a real union with me, you must be completely and utterly dependent upon me for everything. In every way. And you have to burn the bridges to Satan's world. Let's go back to the quote now. A union with Christ by living faith is enduring. Every other union must perish. Christ first chose us. Paying an infinite price for our redemption and the true believer chooses Christ as first, at last and best in everything. See, that's been our problem in Seventh-day Adventists in the last 150 years or so in Laodicea. We have not chosen Christ first. We have chosen other things first. We have not chosen Christ last. We have not chosen Christ best. We come to church, we do all these things, but that's not giving Christ our best. You understand? We give Christ our best in everything. And I, I could say more, but I'm going to talk more about that later. But this union costs us something. It does what? It costs. There's a price to pay. It is a relation of utter dependence to be entered into by a proud being. How many of you are pride, proud? How many of you are humble this morning? If you, if, if, you, if you say you're humble and you raise your hand, you just lost your humility, right? We're all proud, aren't we? So this is the union we must enter. All who form this union must feel their need of the atoning blood of Christ. They must have a change of heart. They must submit their own will to the will of God. There will be a struggle. There will be a what, friends? If you if you endure, how many of you have endured a struggle? Don't think that because you endure a struggle, there's something wrong. If you're enduring a struggle, there's actually something right taking place. If there's no struggle there, then there's a problem. Are you with me? Because we are carnally, naturally carnal. We have enmity against God, you understand, our very natures. It is not a natural thing for us to be spiritual people. It's not a natural thing for us to submit to the authority of a higher power. We are, we are. Our natures have been changed that we would rule over ourselves, but really be in slavery to the to the enemy. Right? Okay. Back to the quote. There, uh, there must be a, uh, there must be, there will be a struggle with outward and internal obstacles. There must be a painful work of detachment. Detachment from what? From sin, as well as a work of attachment. Attachment to who? To Christ. So I'm detaching myself from sin, I'm attaching myself to Christ. Pride, selfishness, vanity, worldliness, sin in all of its forms must be overcome if we would enter into union with Christ. The reason, notice this friends, the reason why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from these cherished idols. That's why we find the Christian life so difficult. Because we're trying to live for Satan and trying to live for Christ at the same time. We have to sever those things. Jesus says if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, of course, he's not talking about that that physically. But what he is saying is whatever emotional, whatever mental, whatever spiritual attachment you have to a person to a thing, to a substance, whatever it is. You must, by the grace of God, choose to cut it off. It might be painful because maybe I've been in that relationship for three years, you see. Maybe I've been in that, in that wrong relationship. Maybe I've been living with that person for the last two or three years. And there's an attachment there. Of course it's going to be hard. Whoever said following Jesus would be easy. You don't find that line in the Bible anywhere. Let me ask you a question, friends. God, is it worth it, yes or no? Yes. And let me, let me tell you something. God will love you enough to allow you to endure a temporary pain so that you can, you can experience an eternal healing. Amen. It may be temporarily painful in this life, but it will bring healing and eternity. Amen? What do you say? Praise the Lord. We must, in confession, separate ourselves from partnership with worldliness and coldness with each other. Look at this statement from Andrew Murray, a great preacher in the 1800s. Oh, but we are far more content with our work than we are with prayer. We believe more in speaking to men than speaking to God. Learn this, that the Holy Spirit calls us to a renewed season of fasting and prayer, a new separation from the pleasures of this world, to a consecration to God and to His fellowship. You may be a very earnest, godly, devoted believer in whom the power of the flesh is yet still very strong. Listen to this, friends. Before the cross, Peter loved Jesus. Yes or no? Peter loved Jesus. He was always by His side. He loved to sit at His feet. He told Jesus, I'll go to prison with you. I'll even die for you. Peter had a very strong phileo love, a very strong brotherly love to Jesus. But when it came to the place where Peter had to think of his own life, his own survival, his own preservation, or that of Jesus, he was ready to drop Jesus like a bad habit. He was ready to leave Jesus at the door. He denied Him not once, not twice, but three times. And dear friends, today it is my fear that there are many Seventh-day Adventist Christians in God's final remnant church who love Jesus but have not been transformed by His amazing grace. They have not understood the joy of salvation. We love Him, but in a crisis, we would deny Him. And how do you know this? How do you know if you fit that bill? How do you know if you are that person by the way you live your life today, are you living in harmony with the principles of God in your life? Are you being faithful to God in all that you do? Does Christ take first possession of your pocketbook, your social activities, your entertainment? Does Christ rule your life? And if He does not, then you would be among the first to deny Him, and so would I. Andrew Murray continues. He says, it is either one of the two. There is either no other choice for us. We must either deny self or deny Christ. There is two great powers fighting each other. Self in the power of sin and Christ in the power of God. One of these must rule over us. And let me tell you, friends, Jesus is in that heavenly sanctuary pleading with you. Not just every day, not just every hour, but every second and millisecond of the day. He is pleading with the Father that He would influence each one of us, that it would be Him that rules over our lives, and not the enemy who's ready to destroy us in a heartbeat. Dear friends, there must be a wrestling. There must be a, 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 a tackling of this ancient old practice of closet prayer. We do not pray like a people of God ought to pray. What do you think this morning? We raise up in the morning. We pray over our breakfast. We read our little one-page devotionals, which, by the way, I think are almost a curse for people because they read that little one-page devotional and they think, oh, I'm good with God today. They have not studied God's Word. They have read the words that someone else wrote. They have not studied the spirit of prophecy. Oh, there might be a little paragraph in there, but that's not enough for a people who are wrestling against the lion that would destroy their souls. We must go to God in prayer. We must kneel before Him. We must pour our hearts out before Him. And if you don't know how to pray, go in there and get on your knees and ask God to teach you how to do it and stay there until you know how. Stay there. People say, well, how long should I pray? Friends, I can't tell you how long to pray, but you ought to be in there praying long enough until you know that God has spoken and transformed your heart. Get up early in the morning, turn off Facebook, turn off the news, turn off the entertainment and the sitcoms, and get in the closet with God. Does your eternity mean that much to you? Does the eternity of your children and your parents and your rest of your family doesn't mean that much to you to go to the God of heaven in prayer today. Ian Bounds said, we are in danger of substituting churchly work and a ceaseless round of showy activities for prayer and holy living. A holy life does not live in the prayer closet, but it cannot live without the closet. He goes on and he says, this is not a praying age. It is an age of great activity, of great movements, but one in which the tendency is very strong to stress the seen and the material and to neglect and discount the unseen and the unspiritual. Dear friends, we must pursue righteousness. What do you think this morning? Number three, we've got to move on quickly. Absolute surrender can only take place when righteousness is not just preferred or pursued. but We can pursue it all day, but unless we what, friends? Unless we possess it. We are doomed. What do you think? First John chapter 3 and verse 5. Notice what it says here. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no what? There is no sin. Jesus Christ took our place. I can't get any better than that. He took what we deserved so we could have what he deserved. His righteous life was lived so that we can draw on his account and when we by faith receive him his righteousness will be put upon us and God will look upon us as if we've never sinned that's a beautiful thing that when john first john chapter 3 verse 5 john here speaks to the issue of sanctification amen i'm sorry justification he speaks to the issue of justification here he says whoever you know that he was manifested he was revealed he came to the earth to take away our sins, and in Him there is no want. There is no sin. And when we come to Christ, the beauty of His righteous life is put over our life of filthy rags. Dear friends, if that's not precious to you, that you have not felt your need of a divine Savior, you have not felt the fullness of sin in your life, you've not been broken by the power of sin, and we need to have some serious prayer in our lives. Amen? The beauty of justification. Ella White makes it so clear. By faith, the sinner who has so grievously wronged and offended God can bring to God the merits of Christ. And the Lord places the obedience of His Son to the sinner's account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. In this transaction, God pardons justifies and loves the sinner as he loves his son. How I many of you could say amen? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Also, brother AG Daniels makes it very clear as well. Let me read this to you. He says this is how far faith takes the place or this is how faith takes the place of works and is accounted righteousness. This wonderful truth should be perfectly clear to every believer and it must become personal what friends? Experience It should enable us to cease from our own works, efforts, and struggles, and to enter into calm, trusting, living faith in the merits, obedience, and righteousness of Christ. These we may present to God in place of our failures. We should now experience the peace and joy in which such a marvelous transaction is able to bring to our hearts. Notice what he says that's underlined. He says, this must be what? Personal experience. You know what, friends? We often claim the righteousness, we often talk about the righteousness of Christ. We often talk about the grace of God, but it is often that we are not experiencing it transforming us. But we must have that experience, and people make it so complicated, but in reality, it's so simple. All we have to do is put our faith in Christ and what He's done for us. He's already done it. Number four. Once we receive that righteousness, once we possess it, it must then be what, friends? It must then be practiced. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. Verse 5 tells us we must possess it. We must have justification. Verse 6 and 7 deal with sanctification. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. And some people say, well, Brother West, Pastor West, you can't, you can't say that we're going to live in this life without sin. Why would we want to ever limit God? How could we say that God can't do something in us? He can only not do something in you if you reject Him and refuse to let Him. That's the only way. But if you open your hearts, friends, there is no limit to what Jesus can do in the life. And let me tell you this, if... Jesus Christ, by faith, lives His righteous life within us, if He's living out His life through us, then should it be possible that he could, do, he could live His life through us without sin? What do you think? Am I claiming to be there? No. So what's the problem? Why do we always keep sinning? Because we, we take our eyes off of Him. And when we do this, then we stumble and fall, you see. Paul says... As you have, therefore, received Christ, Jesus, even so what? Walk in him. When he says, "Even as you have received him, he's talking about justification." How many of you were overjoyed the first time you received Jesus? You were just so delighted, and such had such peace. And Paul says, "Once you experience justification, just as if I never sinned, now you begin the process of sanctification." And so Paul says, "Look we often stumble as Adventists over the issue of sanctification. But it's really simple. With the same faith you receive Jesus... The same simple childlike trusting faith, that's the faith you also walk in him by. You understand? It's not, it's not that we, we have this simple faith where we receive Jesus and now we're justified, and now all of a sudden we turn around and there's sanctification staring us in the face, and it's all big and, and bad, and, and it's going to crush out our life. No, no, no. It's not different. The same simple faith that worked in justification also works in sanctification. As you therefore have received Christ, even so do what? Walk in Him. Just keep trusting in His merits. Keep believing in His righteousness. And every day asking Christ to live His righteous life through yours. And as you do this, without taking your eyes off of Him, you will live a righteous life. Righteousness will be practiced in your life. But if you stumble and sin, You've taken your eyes off him, and there's no hope for you now. Isn't that right? No. no. John says, beloved, do not sin, but if you do sin, we have what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's always ready to pick you back up and set you back on that path of simple, trusting, childlike faith. Aren't you so, sim- aren't you so glad that God makes it so simple this morning? Amen? Then you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He who sins is of the devil... For the devil has sinned from the beginning, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And so John tackles in this chapter in just a few verses, the three issues of justification, sanctification and glorification. He's saying it's all by simple what? By simple faith. Justification frees us from sin's penalty. Remember we said this the other day. Sanctification frees us from sin's what? Power. And glorification frees us from sin's presence. Justification is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Sanctification is what Jesus does in us as He dwells in us by faith. And glorification is the place where He's going to take us because of what He's made of us. How many of you think it's a beautiful thing? Too many of us are dwelling in justification, and we think, "Oh, it doesn't really matter what I do after that." No, it matters, because Christ must finish the work of restoring God's character in your hearts. God must reveal Himself through you, and that leads us to our uh, another point. I want you to go with me to John chapter—not uh, John, but James. We got to quickly finish in three minutes. James chapter four and verse seventeen. Look at this. Therefore, to him who knows to do what? To do it good and does not do it. To him it is what? To him it is sin. And so listen friends. Don't miss this point. If I were to ask you what is righteousness? You would probably say to refrain from sin. How many of you would say that? To be, if I was to be righteous, I, w- I would not yield myself to temptation. Yes or no? And that, Is that true? It's true. It's correct. However, it's only half of the coin. You're with me? It's only one side. Because John, James says that if you know to do good, to do what? Good, and doeth it not, to him it is what? Sin. So sin is not just simply refraining from temptation, but it is actually the act of doing what? Good. Are you with me? So many of us trying to live like Christ, and we're just trying to not do the bad stuff. If I can just not do the bad stuff, I'll be doing good. No, 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 God says, not only do I want you to not do the bad stuff, but I actually want you to practice righteousness. I want you to do good to others. I want you to lead them to Christ. I want you to, 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 to point them to the Savior. I want you to have good works in your life. We're not saved by good works, but other people are saved by good works. We're saved by the good works of Jesus, amen? So the good works that we do, that Christ produces in us, it's not for us to be saved, but it's so that others can be led to the Savior to be saved. Amen? Self is our greatest curse. It hinders and destroys self-sacrificing love. Yet self is the one thing we rarely pray for deliverance from. You see, friends, listen. We have to practice righteousness. In other words, practice self-denying love for one another. What do you think? Self-denying love, even for those that hate us. Even for the, if we consider ourselves on whatever side of the fence, liberal, uh, conservative, biblical, whatever you think you are, the person you disagree with, you ought to be able to go and put your arm around them at the end of the day and say, you know what, brother? We love each other. We love each other. Amen? How can I learn to love I cannot learn to love until the Spirit of God fills my heart with God's love. And I begin to love in a very different way that I have sought it so selfishly. Here's how we often seek love. As a comfort, joy, happiness, and pleasure to who? To myself. And God says, no, 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 that's not what my love is. My love is to deny yourself for who? For others. Amen? To deny yourself for others. Andrew Murray says, I will not learn it until I realize that God is love and and claim it to receive as an indwelling power for self-sacrifice. I will not love until I begin to see that my glory, my blessedness, is to be like God in Christ in giving up everything in myself for my fellow men. We think that we're going to go out and love the lost and we're fighting in our churches about carpet and about other things. God, close my mouth and open my heart. Amen? Notice this statement. The Lord never blesses him who criticizes and accuses his brethren, for this is Satan's work. Manuscript 21, 1894. What do you think about that this morning? You think that's significant? Yes or no? Very significant. Have you gone to that brother or sister and asked them for forgiveness? Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have what? If you have love for one another. And this is number five. I got an error there on the screen, but number five absolute surrender takes fruit when righteousness by faith is what? Proclaimed. Look at verse 17 through 19. We're going to wrap up. 1 John chapter 3 and verses 17 through 19. We're going a little over this morning, but you'll bear with me, right? Verse 17. But whoever in this, let me just uh, go down to verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for who? The brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in what? But in deed and in truth. And this we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. That righteousness by faith must not just be pre- preferred or possessed or practiced, but it also must be what? Proclaimed, proclaimed through our lives, through our actions. So there you go, dear friends, the five keys to absolute surrender, the five keys to experience the fullness of the righteousness of Christ. to do what? To number one, prefer it. Number two, what? Pursue it. Number three, possess it. Number four, practice it. And number five, proclaim it through the love of God. Our Christian life is to be a continuous proof that God works impossibilities. It is to be a series of impossibilities made possible by His power. Amen? Today, friends, the world needs not just a proclamation or a documentation, but a demonstration of the gospel and the righteousness of Jesus. What do you think this morning? God isn't waiting for His character to be formed in a people. He is forming His character right now in the hearts of those who will open theirs to it. Amen? Amen. This morning, dear friends, we need to have the righteousness of Christ. We need to want it more than anything else in this world. More than the than the pleasures of food more than the pleasures of entertainment more than the pleasures of lust more than the pleasures of anything in this life it has to be precious to us is it precious to you today have you experienced it are you experiencing it are you living it there's nothing more that that Jesus wants for you than to have that experience today how many of you want it this morning How many of you are looking, longing after it? You're chasing after it, but you want to possess it by faith. How many of you want to have that transformation of heart that only Jesus can give you? Is that your desire this morning? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we would not simply possess righteousness, Lord, but we would practice and proclaim it We would not just simply refrain from evil and think that we're okay, but we actually must do good in this life. And we are not good, Lord. We are deceitfully wicked, the Bible says about our hearts. But You can make us good. You've provided the means to make us good, to make us whole, to make us complete. And this morning, O Lord, may we experience the fullness of, And the beauty of your righteousness. May we have deliverance from the penalty. May we have victory over its power. And may one day very soon when Jesus comes. We may be delivered from its presence. We plead with you today. That your spirit would work in our hearts. That you would awaken us. To our need. Of that beautiful Savior. Make it clear in our hearts Lord. Make it clear in our minds. And may it be our choice today. May we yield our wills to you and may you be the core and the center of our entire lives. And Lord, there may be somebody here today who feels themselves in trouble, who feels themselves weak. Lord, draw near to them. Let them reach out to you by faith in this very moment. In their hearts, they're reaching out to you. Clasp them by the hand, O Lord, and bring healing and strength to their lives. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name.